So we keep on keeping on. Hey, little humans, I'm Norma Jean, and this is Stay Wild, the podcast about how to keep your quirks in the wondrous world. We're talking today with Bandana Tawari, who's the editor-at-large in Vogue, and we get into some really fun space about ethical fashion, the culture of fashion in India, um, and what she's been doing there. It's really, really an amazing conversation. And then we get into a toast poem. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. You can see all my artwork and all my cartoons, see all my music, or hear all my music at njloves.com. If you're liking the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from, and write us a review if you can. It really helps. Until then, enjoy the show. All right, little humans, I'm here with Bandana Tiwari, who is the editor-at-large of Vogue India. Hi, Bandana. Hi, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Welcome to the show. So... You are about fashion, and you're from India originally. Um, how did you get started in in fashion and publishing, and how did that work for you? Um, well, I am from India. I was born and raised there, but I'm Nepali. Mm. So my origins are in the beautiful Himalayan kingdom. And, um, yeah, and, you know, I grew up in Darjeeling, where the tea comes from. I went to an incredible convent and <laughs> had the most romantic childhood so I think becoming a writer started there because, you know, you're surrounded by phenomenal nature, learning Shakespeare, facing the Kanchenjunga Mountains. Like, who gets to do that when you're just a teenager? So, yeah, and, you know, India is all about studying. So I studied a lot. Mm. And along the path, I managed to do my master's in filmmaking and I chanced upon documentaries on fashion. And then I thought, this is where I want to specialize on the sociology, on of fashion, not clothes for clothes sake, but clothes within a context of how we live our lives, our economy, the politics, our gender. And so that's how I got into fashion. And then when Vogue came along to India, I was all primed for this job. Okay, perfect. So you were like, okay, this is what I'm really interested. You developed, you really developed that strength in terms of your writing, in terms of storytelling. Um, and then by the time Vogue was like, hey, we're really interested in what India is doing and the fashion that's coming out of there and the fashion that's internal in the country, they were like, you're our gal. <laughs> you know, what's fun was for me, I was, you know, the time that I joined the fashion industry was the time when we were all questioning what is Indian modern design? Mm. and how Indian are we and do we have to look Indian when we are abroad and can we wear the sari in a modern way mm. you know so we were all questioning this sort of a confluence of traditional and western nuances and aesthetics so it was a very interesting time to be able to be a young woman educated in cosmopolitan cities and how do we want to project ourselves remain Indian but also be a contemporary woman of the world so it was a fantastic time to be in a magazine that allowed you to explore all these notions yeah it's so interesting because as women sorry bear with us it's always Bali so there's a couple of little <laughs> things but so as I mean as a woman you know there's always this this I find within myself this dichotomy of who you are supposed to be right and the nice girl or the you know sweet person that everyone expects you to be right. and then who you want to be right and i think now it's it's becoming more and more easy for women but it hasn't always been 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And don't forget, I mean, there are very, some very regressive things that happen in my country. And we as educated modern women were acutely aware that uh, women getting punished for what they wear or she asked for it because she was wearing this, you mm. know. And we have politics that is filled with stupid politicians who are completely regressive. So we're constantly in this dialogue and thank God to social media you know, for social media that we're able to have this conversation that go really far and wide about why women are being judged so superficially. At the same time, clothing is important. It mm. does say a lot about you. Mm. You know, and there's a great quote by Cecil Beaton, who used to be this raconteur and poet and mm. uh, so society diarist. And he said that, you know, anyone, everyone, when you wake up in the morning and you decide what you want to wear, it is your first work of art that you treat yourself as a canvas and how you want to project yourself to the world. So while I want to acknowledge and own the fact that the way I dress is who I am without being judged, at the same time, I think women are very smart. So mm -hmm. every time a woman was called slutty for wearing something that perhaps looks slutty, we are in the era where we know how to own that. Yeah. I'm a nasty girl. Hashtag right. went right, viral right, because right. of that. Slutty right? isn't a bad word. Yeah. Right. And it as long as you own it, you own it. And if this is the way you want to feel, you know, hats off to you. Mm. So we don't have to wait for people to reappropriate who I am and who I want to be. Right. I'm going to tell you through my choices. Correct. Okay. Fantastic. And so... When you talk about how um, people pick out what they wear every day, I've, ha I've talked to a couple of people in fashion, and it's so interesting because, I mean, I'm a bit of a foodie, right? So for me, I will think about a meal <laughs> like, right. for a while, right? So I think for, for people in fashion, designers, editors, people who are really kind of on the inside of it, is that, it, does it help? I mean, is it really that big a part of your identity? You know, I've been in sort of the ringside of fashion for 10 years mm. with Vogue India, and I do the shows in Paris and Milan. It's a great privilege to be surrounded by superbly talented people. Mm. But there are different types of obsessions with fashion. Yeah. You know, you'll realize that a lot of the designers who make the most spectacular clothes are not as fashion-minded as you would think. You know, for them, it's a form of art and expression. Then there are those who are self-styled, curated. I mean, it's just the most bastardized word in the history of <laughs> words. This curator, you know, the self-styled curator who dress up not because they have their own personal style, but it's almost like how they want to be perceived by others. It's not who you are, the idea of who you are. Mm. That you see a lot in fashion, which personally I'm not a big fan of. But when you're talking about how much care do people take about their clothes I'll tell you an example I'll give you an example I just interviewed I was in Paris to interview the first female designer for Christian Dior mm. she's an Italian woman called Maria Grazia mm -hmm. and she made this collection and she said you know what I love the idea of a uniform something that I feel protected in mm. and I don't have to think too much about it because you go around the world working and you have find your protective clothes, whether it's a, mm. a, a jacket that you wear or it's a trench coat that just gives you that protection yeah. or a uniform of black, for instance. Yeah, I've heard because that President Obama did that. It's yeah. called the capsule wardrobe, right, where you yeah. wear the same thing every day. So you don't have so, to make as many and, decisions. And I, what, what she said that was really interesting was then it frees you to fight for your ideas. Ah, yeah, you yeah. Know? No, I, I read something a while back about how President Obama 
had a capsule wardrobe, which is pretty much the same thing, right? It's like a uniform. You you wear the same thing every day. And he, I think he was quoted saying, it's so that it's one less decision I have to make. Correct. So it allows you to go forth and conquer the world in whatever way you want for that day, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't like the idea of being so obsessive about your clothes that you will become this curatorial queen every morning. I think mm. it's probably I'm so t- tiring. Who wants to do that? <laughs> but yes, there are many millions out there who mm. seem to enjoy it and well. That's what it is for them. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about the different types of obsession people have with clothes and fashion. What's yours? I'm obsessed with t-shirts. Okay. They all have to be V-neck because I think people forget when you are buxom, your yeah, round no, necks agree. that touch your neck do no good. No good. But I love t- uh, t-shirts and slogans. And, you know, we just did a story on how sloganism and politicking mm. is such a big part of clothes today. So I love the idea that of having a quote on my chest and just the ease of T-shirts. And if you see the history of T-shirts, I mean, I've got coffee table books on T-shirts. Mm. You know, there's such a big trajectory of how people thought and what kind of ideas and politics of the times were being communicated by the choice of T-shirts. You yeah. know, whether it was from the hip-hop era, do you go all the way to the punk uh, in the 60s and 70s, to the flower power... The t-shirts played a crucial role in communicating the mood of the times. So yeah. I, I love the idea of the t-shirt and I love the comfort of the t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. That's so fun. Because <laughs> a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I'm into ball gowns or blah, blah, blah. But it's true because t-shirts are really, they're one of the things that really talk about where the culture's at. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. She's wearing a shirt right now that says karma (laughs) for all of you at home. Um, So I've heard from a couple of people that you also have talked quite a bit to ethical fashion. So can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. It's my passion and I'm literally sitting here uh, trying to do workshops uh, Mm. to talk about sustainability, sustainable practices, because, you know, our biggest problem is fast fashion. We live in an era where we're saying, see now, buy now, throw now, you know, and we're living in what we, it's a linear system. So it's produced, then you buy, you consume, and you throw. But we have to talk about circular economies mm-hmm. where before you throw, you've got to th- see how the next cycle mm-hmm. can be given birth to. So you recycle that whole system because there's so much throwing away. Mm-hmm. You're throwing away billions of tons of clothes every day. It's filling up landmines it's polluting the environment fashion is the second largest pollutant after oil fashion is fashion is and this is because of the high level of consumption and Mm. production so you know i participate in a lot of sustainable conferences one amazing one to follow is the copenhagen fashion summit copenhagen fashion Fashion Summit. summit where you can stream the videos and brilliant speakers from the founder of patagonia which is a phenomenal sustainable brand yeah they're doing some great stuff yeah you know you can watch his uh, talk he is brilliant two top of the rung people from fast fashion companies like h&m who have to stand up there and tell them tell us the story of accountability Mm. because (laughs) we're telling them you've got to stop making so many clothes that that every teenager thinks just buying two t-shirts in a week is a thing to do yeah you know and there is something yeah, it's 104 t-shirts a year. And there's something fundamentally wrong with the system when your t-shirt starts costing less than your coffee. So then you have to question, where is that t-shirt being made? On what conditions? Mm-hmm. By whom? 
is it being made in Bangladesh by young women mm. who are sitting huddled in the most inhumane conditions, overworked, underpaid, underventilated places, mm. just so you can buy a T-shirt for three dollars. Mm. And you know, and there have been catastrophic uh, events that took place in Bangladesh. Yes, when, you know, the Rana factory collapse and the world stood up and. You know, Livia Firth stood on the rubble mm. and said, "Is this what you want to buy?" Yeah. You know, the the, the you're buying T-shirts over the dead bodies of hundreds of mothers. Mm. So we have to ask, why are you wearing it? Why, who's making it? The provenance of your clothes. Mm. That for me is personally very very important story. If you're working in fashion today. Yeah, absolutely. And additionally, being, I mean, India is such a diverse place, right? You have Mumbai with million dollar condos and you have, you know, like a slumdog millionaire. It's, 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 you got everything, right? So, but being so close to where a lot of this fast fashion is manufactured, what's that like? Oh, I mean, you know, we, we live in, India is the most bipolar country, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm saying it with a, a lot of jests too, and I can afford to say it because I am from there. So there's this whole English and vernacular divide. You have the urban-rural divide, the rich and the poor. It's the gender divide. Mm. So everything's in extremes. Mm. So on the one hand, you know, we giving work to people is one thing. Yeah. But we have few cities which are being flooded by rural migrants mm. because their own systems are not looking after them, mm. right? So city after city is getting overpopulated. They live in abysmal conditions. So for us, it's a matter of policy. Our government has to empower the villages so village economies can thrive on their own and they live with their families and they work from, with their families. Yeah. So there's a big change, a big shift in design right now, especially with individual high fashion designers who are employing people who have the ability and the craftsmanship and they are artisans mm -hmm. to employ them from where they belong as opposed to bringing them to cities mm. where they live in inhuman conditions without their family. Right, and they have to go through that migrant journey as yeah. well. So these big factories don't take into account that they're human beings behind these products. Yeah. And they leave their homes and their families and they come into these massive mills. Yeah. You know? So it's it's the problem is so acute that it's not just up to individuals anymore it's about the government and yeah. policies yeah because i think in the in more in the western world right in in europe or in america or in australia we're really more consumers we don't produce that much anymore so being on the front lines of both the consumerist economy consumerism but then also that production economy it's it's so interesting well the bottom line mm. in this is it fair is it fair trade mm. what are the living wages that's being given to these workers, yeah, you know, and most of the times you'll see that there is huge discrepancy and inequality. You wouldn't even dare give the kind of money that you give a person who's working in India and Bangladesh in your own country. Mm. You'll follow your rules in your country. So, you know, I think fundamentally it come, boils down to respect. Yeah, absolutely. Respect for other people mm. and putting people over processes, yeah. people over products. People over products. Absolutely. So within, you mentioned within like government and policy, there's things that India and other countries are doing to kind of combat that so people can stay in their villages and stay within those traditional setups. 
you know, traditional, uh, I'm losing the word here. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. within their traditional family sure. units and all that. Um, but what are some, what are some choices or some things that you've been doing to combat it as, as an industry leader? So, I mean, I'm a very small player, so I attempt things that are manageable. I do go around giving a lot of talks. Mm. In fact, I was in a luxury conference, Condé Nast Luxury Conference in Oman recently. Mm -hmm. And the overall topic was mindful luxury. Mm -hmm. And I did a presentation, a a speech on Gandhi and fashion. Mm. Asking people to revisit Gandhian principles and to enable your company to follow the teachings mm. of Ahimsa, which is nonviolence. Mm. And nonviolence at the root is all about sustainability, sustainable practices. Are you looking after your environment? Are you looking after your people? Are you nonviolent towards the world that you live in? Are you nonviolent in the way you consume? Mm. And Gandhi had a very, very profound and powerful relationship with clothes. Mm. You know, he used to be a dandy and always wanted to look like an Englishman during the British Raj. And as he evolved over time and became uh, sort of philosophical about wanting to seek freedom for India, Mm. you know, from British colonialism, and he traveled the length and breadth of India, and he worked as a lawyer in South Africa, he started shedding his clothes. Today, what we know of Gandhi is just wears that one little piece of cloth yeah. called the loincloth. Yeah, he's the wearing a loincloth. Loincloth. And, and, and all of the posters, and, you know, he's walking yeah. into the ocean and to it, get it, the salt. Yeah, and It was a symbolic gesture. Every time he removed his clothes and gave up on the fineries of English English wear, mm. and gentlemen's clothes, of coats and jackets, and all that he gave up, and he started embracing a handmade fabric mm. that just needed to do the minimum. It was his act of letting the world know that he was sympathizing with the poorest of the poor in India mm. and he fought for their rights. Yeah. And, you know, there's a professor called Professor Gonzalez whose essay inspired me to do the speech mm-hmm. and he talks about sartorial integrity. Sartorial integrity. integrity. Oh, I it love this how, term. How do you make your clothes reflect your morality? Mm. Are you morally transparent in right. the way you wear your clothes? Okay. So I go around giving this talk to students, to people in the industry. I also work on a whole bunch of projects that is all about collaborating with handmade textiles between different countries. Mm, That's super nice, handmade textiles. So in terms of sartorial integrity, for a lot of people out there, how, how do you know who made your clothes? Well, first of all, knowing what brands you're picking up. And understanding, we are all on Google now. Everything that we want is the tip of. That's true. Fingers. We live in the Google world. Yes. You know, <laughs> to me personally, if I'm going to indulge in a brand, mm. I just have to go to their website and figure out what kind of practices they have. Mm. Like that's just the you know, sort of the superficial way of going into it. I know brands that are blatantly corrupting the environment. Mm-hmm. So those brands, and I'm not going to take those names because yeah. I still work within the industry, but I won't personally touch them. Okay. Okay. And that you get to know because mm. now everything goes viral. When crocodiles are skinned inhumanly for bags that luxury bags, you know what? Yeah. There's no question about it. I won't be touching that bag. Yeah. Or if a factory has collapsed because I know these t-shirts were being made there, I will not. Yeah. For all the millennials out there, there's a great website called Fashion Revolution. Fashion okay? Revolution. And you can just hashtag your label that is on your t-shirt or your clothes mm. and hashtag the name of the, and say who made my clothes 
hashtag the brand. I've heard about the hashtag who made my clothes. Yes, we had someone else on the show who mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and you hold the uh, brand accountable to Mm. show you who made the clothes. Sometimes share the picture of the lady sitting Mm. in Cambodia who made your t-shirt. You know, so now this level of participation mm. and social responsibility is on social media. Yeah. And there are many more websites of this kind where, you know, I think it's about, you know, learning. Yeah. Being engaged enough yeah. to read more about sustainable yeah. practices and yeah. ask where it's coming from. Yeah. As someone who is part of the of the journalism and publication and you know, bringing brands into the forefront, does it affect your decision about who to write about, what trends you want to cover, things like that? Like if you know a label is doing great things or doing not so great things in terms of their practices or in terms of their environmental standards or anything like that, do you kind of, you know, if you find out that someone is, you know, underpaying working mothers in Bangladesh, do you bump them down? You know, unfortunately, (laughs) it's only now that this huge conversation has started about sustainable practices and about fair trade, you know. So it requires, requires, also don't forget, usually with high luxury items, Mm. it's in many ways the opposite of fast fashion. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in fact, now these big brands survive and that their USP, so to speak, is made by hand, mm-hmm. made in Italy, made taking ownership of their right. own regions, their own countries. Right. That's our, called couture. Yeah. yeah. Our problem is basically fast fashion. And I have to say, we don't, as a media and consumers, don't hold companies responsible enough. Mm. No one gets bumped off, no one gets bumped down, because the systems aren't as transparent and so vocal and verbal about exploitation yet, I feel. Okay. You know? Um, I know the conversation has started. I suppose working in a publishing house, which is a it's a corporate a company, it gets more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. There's politics around those things all the yeah. time. But personally, I would love, and I propagate that for media companies to be more accountable as to what we put in the magazine. Mm. And if it is absolutely unethical, yes, we wouldn't put it. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Um, and then to maybe do you highlight the ones that are doing the right yeah, thing? Yeah, I mean, have those Vogue practices? India, we've always been at the forefront of celebrating made by hand and celebrating what's mm-hmm. made in India. Don't forget, most of the best of the embroideries, embellishments that you see in high-end luxury brands are all made in India. Ah. But the Indian artisan does not get any credit. Okay. Right? Okay. I mean, he must. they will be paid and they're paying for a service. But we've reached a stage in the history of fashion and mm. clothing where you know we want to be able to tell a story a narrative when you're sitting here and you buy a jacket made out of ikat you want to know which region it came from yeah so you for want- those of you listening ikat is a it's a tradition of dyeing fabric here in indonesia is it weaving and dyeing so there's um there's specific ikats and patterns that are specific to different regions and families and villages in indonesia yeah absolutely yeah. So, you know, now we, are, we all want... People want the provenance. Provenance. And the experience. Every time I put on the jacket, it's going to remind me mm. that I went to Lombok and sat with these women and saw how they wove. So that the storytelling has become really important in fashion. Mm. Right? So I've lost my chain of thought now. No, 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 no. It makes sense. So you're talking about things that are made in India. Oh, I'm, so correct. Yeah. So from my... 
from my limited knowledge of India, um, it seems like there's a few, well, more than a few traditional crafts that people have that are passed down generation, generation, generation. Hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. Yeah, I heard like there's villages that just make paper or, you know, very specific things. And so in terms of the made in India um, and, and really encouraging that domestic product, what is India known for and, and what are some things that you really celebrate? So Indian fabrics. Oh mm. my goodness. From the length and breadth of the country, every region has its own fabrics and mm. different versions of it. They're all handmade. Mm. India is a rural, predominantly a rural economy. Mm. We still have some 70, 80% of the whole of India is, they reside in villages. Okay. Okay. And there, I mean, now it's all changing, which is very unfortunate, but every village would have its own set of dyers, weavers, embroiderers. You know, they were all very craft-centric yeah. uh, villages. So all over India, you'll find different types of handmade textiles, yeah. which collectors will tell you that it's unparalleled in any part of the world to find that level of variety as mm. we do in India. The best of embroideries come from there. Yeah, You see any of the international designs, you name it, they've made the embroideries in India. Wow. Uh, it's incredible. Like you can go right up to Kashmir and you see the embroidery done by men there. It wow. looks like print. You can go to every region. You can go on yeah, a textile. Yeah, it looks like it's made with a printer. You can go on a textile journey all over India and discover. That's a great way to discover the country. Then, of course, apart from that, what are we known for? Oh, we are known for being over the top and the bindis and the bangles and the. Uh, we, we love all the colors. We it's a it's like being in a circus every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, we're going to take a short break and then we'll come back with Vandana in a minute. Thanks again. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I'm a singer, songwriter, original daily doodler. I draw my original cartoons every day on my Instagram at Norma Jean Loves Doodles. I've been posting one every day for 900 days plus and counting. Um, so you can see all my shenanigans at njloves.com. If you like us, please subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from, and write us a review if you can. It really helps other people find the show that are digging it. Um, we are actually looking for sponsorships, so if anyone's interested, hit us up at staywildpodcast.com. And back to the show. All right, we're back with Vandana Tawari. Hi, Vandana. Hi. So before the break, we were talking about Indian fashion and some really beautiful artisanal traditions that India is known for, right? So a lot of embroidery that, I mean, is so beautiful and, and it takes so long to learn that it looks like it's been printed and some beautiful fabrics, like you were saying, different parts of India have um, different kinds of fabrics. Yes. You know, it took us a bit of time to be able to celebrate our Indianness mm. because when the, our economy opened up, everything was about the Western culture. Mm. And with all the big Western brands coming in, we sort of, you know, got lost in what is our own Indian aesthetic. Mm. Either it was too traditional, which alienated a whole bunch of young generation that wouldn't want to wear the saris that their mothers were wearing, for instance. Right. You know, on the other hand, we just had absolute Western clothes, which is gowns and dresses that somehow didn't fit into the Indian landscape. Right. Blue jeans and all that, yeah. I mean, jeans, okay, maybe that was the most democratic thing that ever happened <laughs> in the history of clothing. 
But as we progress, and we notice this even in the magazine and the way we were reporting about our choices and fashion, there's this big ownership that we've taken over our textile legacy. Mm. But just because it's a beautiful textile and it looks traditional doesn't mean it has to be worn in a traditional way. Mm. So now they're converted into beautiful jackets. They're turned into skirts. It has a little bit of an Indian accent to it because of the weave and the colors that we never compromise on. Mm. But there are silhouettes of today for contemporary women. And, you know, there's this whole hue and cry in India about, oh, we're not wearing enough saris. Yeah, we're not wearing every day. Mm. At least the city girls aren't wearing every yeah, day. Yeah. But we've never given it up. Mm. Because, you know, if you invite me to a cocktail party or a sit-down dinner, I'd probably come up, come in a sari. Mm. Except I won't be wearing a seven-yard thick silk sari mm. from South India. I'll be wearing a really skimpy chiffon black sari mm. with a sexy blouse, yeah. our version of the little black dress, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it, enjoy the drape. Yeah. But uh, we know how to modernize it. I yeah. mean, the saris become so sexy in India. Yeah. You'll be surprised. It looks beautiful. No, I'm, I'm, I've always been in awe of, of saris and how beautiful Indian women are when they wear them or any women are when they wear them. And so for those of... For those listeners that may not be so familiar, um, saris are from from what I know. They're traditional. It's like a dress. It's a drape. Yeah. So you, it's actually now the sari is uh, six yards. Okay, six of yards. Unstitched cloth. Oh, okay? okay. It's it's actually woven in a format. Mm-hmm. The looms will only make. Oh, that, so it's uh, that, the size that, of the cloth, the width of that cloth. Okay. Or or the or the length of it. And it's unstitched cloth. So India's got a huge history of unstitched cloth. Okay. You know, because of the region and being able to sort of design your own fabric. Mm-hmm. It is all about how you drape it. So the sari is draped. So as kids, we were taught how to wear the sari. Mm. You put it around a petticoat and you only have that many layers that you can fold. And okay. it has to go into a particular part near your tummy and then you have the scarf bit that goes around on your left side of the shoulder and the length has to be just perfect on the at the back so it's a technique and it comes with uh, with practice yeah but of course in today's day and age because everyone's in a tearing hurry to go everywhere Mm -hmm. you have an option of buying what we call the pre-stitched sari that you can literally jump into like you're wearing a skirt oh and then it like zips up the back zips up yeah yeah (laughs) There are lots of purists who don't like it at all because mm. there's a great romance and great poetry and songs have been sung based on how the sari is unwrapped or unwrapped. Oh, you know? okay. Um, so there is this huge debate going on. Are you sort of sexualizing the sari too much? Should it remain in its traditional mm. avatar? Or so? But it's very interesting because designers are now feeding off this sort of consumer uh, talk about the sari mm. are responding to it. So some are making this pre-stitched sari. Some are going back to making beautiful handmade saris, mm. but with modern designs, lighter mm. to touch. Different but fabrics. all different, the traditional right. techniques in place. Wow. So we, for us, it's really a rediscovering the joy and the romance of the sari in India. Mm. And a lot of them are also being cut up to make into beautiful kimonos, into beautiful kaftans. So you, saris tend to get relegated to your wardrobe only to be worn on special occasions. Right, like weddings or... Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm of the opinion that you make it the living, breathing fabric mm. by making sure you can cut it and make it into a shirt if you have to. 
but you use it. Yeah. And saris are really the skirt that you drape over your shoulder, right? Sari is a fabric that is draped around the petticoat. Okay. So, and, the, and the sari is never, I mean, it's, it's just unstitched fabric. It's just a long scarf. So you wear a top with it. You wear a blouse with it. Okay. But now you've got all kinds of blouses. You have the bikini blouse. Yeah, I've the seen the like blouse. sexy little, I yeah. mean, it's like a crop top. <laughs> yeah, correct, correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. So it seems like there's really a convergence between East and West. Yes. And it, it must be interesting because, I mean, how long have you been in the fashion industry? Maybe 10 years? A decade. Yeah, exactly. So how has that evolved? Well, the biggest evolution in Indian design, I think, is being able to marry the East and the West. Mm. It's some sort of a seamless, incongruous uh, co- way. So, you know, I can wear an Indian designer with little Indian accents. I can wear it to Paris Fashion Week yeah. and be comfortable looking sort of little, you know, sort of regional and indigenous. Right, right, right. But at right. the same time, I'm, I'm wearing it with boots and, you know, the overall look is modern. Right. So that level of amalgamation of two very different aesthetics of mm. the East and the West coming together is where we are at mm. right now. Absolutely. And from a personal standpoint, how has your style evolved? Well, oh gosh. <laughs> I know that's kind of, <laughs> it's always kind of a broad question, isn't it? From, from convent uniform yeah, to, it's to silk difficult. kimonos here in Bali. Yeah, I always struggled with my clothes in the sense that I never found that uniform mm-hmm. in terms of, for me, it was always uh, never knowing what it is I wanted to look like. Mm. So in the process of that uncertainty, I got into the habit of just piling on layers. Mm. So I love the layering, you know. I'll put the the shots of the T-shirt and have a little waistcoat and then I have like what I'm wearing now, like a little throw over it. Mm-hmm. And so that somehow became my kind of style. And I also realized it allowed me a lot of flexibility to wear things from different people, number one, by different people in different regions. Mm. You know, I think I just created a persona for myself where I look like this mashup queen. And so <laughs> anything goes. So I couldn't, then, then I realized that gave me a lot of comfort because I was never thinking about, does this go with this thing or does, you know, can I pair it with this? My, because everyone now is so used to seeing me in a jingle jangle of things mm. that I feel maybe that's my protection garb, that I don't have any definitive look but I can layer things and slap them on. And mm. I mean, you can't see it, but if you look at my uh, wrist, which has... Yeah, we'll have a, a picture good, of Bandana in the show notes. Don't worry. <laughs> in a gazillion, with a gazillion um She's got bangles and bracelets. and I call yeah. that my totem pole. Because it's all, each one is a story. There's probably like 30 they, bracelets on her arm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, each yeah. one has a separate story and mm. what I remember it by. And I mm. will give this up for the world. They're not the fanciest looking stuff. Most of them are like... Uh, disgusting looking threads but they have stories <laughs> mm. so I like to think of my clothes in the same way I would I like knowing who it was made by what region what magical part of the world did it come from mm. you know and when you start thinking about clothes that way you hang on to them then you don't throw them if you've invested in buying some handmade jacket from a part of the world that you've traveled to and you've enjoyed their culture mm. then you, you stick on to it yeah. You know, you don't throw it away in a hurry. And that's the point that I love stressing most in my job, is that we need to consume less and we need to consume with a sense of mindfulness. Mm. So unless you're not, if you're not attached to your clothes, you're not going, you're, you are going to throw them away. Yeah. So personalize it with a personal story and yeah. you will keep them. 
you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's one of, I guess, on a personal level, what's one of your favorite pieces of clothing and what's the story behind it? <laughs> I have a couple. There's a designer in uh, New Delhi called Sunan uh, Dubal, mm-hmm. and he actually comes from the same region that my parents live in now called Sikkim. Mm-hmm. And he's half Sikkimese. It's right up north in the Himalayas. Mm. And uh, he's half Sikkimese, so I had immediate affinity because we come from the same region. Mm. And he uses a lot of the indigenous fabrics from there and embroidery work from Rajasthan. And he puts them together into these mm. beautiful jackets that just it just says culture, hmm. you know, and it has this sort of a rustic charm to it at the same time because I'm not someone who likes to look too polished, mm-hmm. you know, I or curated, mm-hmm. if I can use that word. So that's, I'm a jacket person. Mm. So that's a jacket I love because I know where it comes from. I know the designer who made it and mm. it has seen me through so many trips abroad and, and within my own country and uh, I never, being in fashion, sometimes you're asked, my God, you're repeating your clothes. And I could very, very proudly say, yes, I love repeating my clothes. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And it gave me joy every time I wore it because it just, it's just, it's a red in color to begin with. Mm. So it's just my favorite color and picks me up. So it's all my emotions are attached to this jacket, which is fun. I have a Marnie jacket, which I bought as one of my first splurges right right Marnie is a wonderful designer who shows in Milan Fashion Week Mm. and it's just the most simple long jacket it's no embellishments nothing but it's pin tucked and has this sort of really cool samurai look to it Mm. and it's khaki in color which is also one of my favorites Mm -hmm. I just feel you can't go wrong with that and I'm a jingle jangle girl, so, you know, I need to have my bracelets and I lots of uh, necklaces. Yeah, everyone needs so, those classic so pieces, it, I think, yeah. yeah. So I just have that and my cover-up uh, Marnie and I feel safe. I feel, that's it. I then go forth and fight for my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because a lot of the pieces of the clothing, I think that every woman has, right? You have that one dress and it's not just the story of where the dress came from and where you got it in the label, but the story that you add to it as well. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. You know, every time you, you get something that, you know, really adds not just to your wardrobe or, you know, to what you're wearing, but really adds that energy yeah. to what you're wearing. I mean, I'm really sentimental about the saris that my mom gave me, for instance. Mm. And I look forward to handing them over to my daughter. Yeah. I have a 14-year-old daughter. Okay. And hopefully she'll pass it on because yeah. the kind of work that goes into the weaving and the embellishments, mm. they're all heirlooms. Mm. You know, these are the things that you want to pass on to yeah. the next generation. In India, are they passed down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you don't even wait for the wedding to happen. I mean, when it's a wedding, then just yeah. <laughs> reams and reams of saris given to you by by your cousins, by your aunts, by your mother, by your grandmother. Some are even customized. Mm. So they will go to a, a weaving artisanal village and say, we want to make a dub- double ikkat sari, which is called patola. And we've mm. just got a few families left in India that do it now. Wow. And one sari can take up to four years to weave. Oh, wow. You okay. know, if you actually Google YouTube, Patola weaving. You will cry. Patola weaving. We'll Patola. put that in the show notes for you guys. Yeah, you will cry. It's so intricate. And 
unless you see how it's made, you won't understand the value of that product, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, I'm very, very proud of these incredible saris that my mom and my grandmom have passed on to me. And I really look forward to sharing them with my my child and my nieces. Oh, that's lovely. That's really, really lovely. Um, so what are some tips that you might have for the Stay Wild listener about um, finding those pieces that you connect with, finding the stories behind them, and letting yourself really express yourself and be aware of what you're wearing? <laughs> I'm a big uh, fan and supporter of the behind the scenes of anything. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. The yeah, making same. of. <laughs> yeah. The making Behind of. the music. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's so easy to go and pick up a beautiful looking fabric, but it's also not that difficult to find out where it's being made mm. and to be able to document it. We are living in a world of Instagram and everyone's got photos and cameras, and, you know. Mm. If you just start documenting, mm. you know, it's such a beautiful part of the journey, a sartorial journey, to be able to document the making of. Mm. Once you do that, the value, that, the respect you're going to give what you've picked up mm. is going to be exponentially more. What else? <laughs> I put you a bit on the spot here. Um, we'll have some more tips that Vandana has in the show notes. Um, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been amazing talking about your journey into publications and the sartorial integrity of fabric and your own culture and, and really what things are happening in India in terms of design and fashion and the culture there. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. everyone that was Bandana Tawari we're going to have a lot of really fun stuff for you in the show notes so check it out at staywildpodcast.com and here's today's toast poem there is a bridge between the world of wake and sleep filled with wishes lost thoughts grocery lists secrets it is here that I hear you calling soft yet assured a barely spoken whisper remember when we meet my love your heart will know me by this whisper, for yours will return it. That was Bindana Tiwari, editor-at-large of Vogue India, and a toast poem by me, Norma Jean. Today's episode is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. You can hear all my music and see all my art at njloves.com. We are looking for sponsorship, so for those of you who are interested, hit us up at staywildpodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from, and write us a review if you can. It really helps other people find the show. Until next time, little humans, stay wild. So we keep on keeping on.